This episode is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Barbell Logic, the premier online coaching service for barbell strength training. Get your first month free by signing up at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen or use the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn, and joined today by Jared Sparks. Jared, you've been on the show before. You're doing a lot of great stuff. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back on to chat. Well, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be back. So, Jared, we were talking about your masculine prowess uh, just a minute <laughs> ago, and uh, we, we, I just feel like we have to start with this story. Somewhere, somehow, you had pig meat on your back, and you were carrying it. And I want to know how that happened. How did you get in that position? Yeah, well, it was it was quite the story. Actually, it was pretty a normal story. Story. Actually, we had a group <laughs> of guys at church, and we had a guy that came to us, and he said, "Hey, listen, we went uh, wild boar hunting down in Texas last year. Why don't we get a group together and and why don't we go hunting down there?" And I thought, man, that's that's a great idea. So we took eleven guys from the church. We go down to Texarkana, Texas, and brother, we I felt like we walked days, but we ended up, we had a tracker and everything, but we just, we walked about seven miles and then we came up on some pigs and we got seven of them. And then our small group had to carry that out. And so brother, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping for the wilderness warrior uh, podcast to come back because I was prepared <laughs> yes. mentally because of your show. And I started packing that meat out and I just had a couple hindquarters and a couple shoulders. I had about 70 pounds and bro, I'm telling you, I, we got to the road, we laid out and we just laid down moaning, crying, <laughs> and, and, uh, but we survived. So that's the good thing. And I got the meat in the freezer, prove it. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is incredible. Uh, we were talking about this as well, but when you put meat on your back and you have to carry that out, it's like a very difficult physical challenge. It's hard to anticipate uh, how you will prepare yourself for that. Cause I mean, it, I've done it before and it's like, I'm squatting, I'm deadlifting, I'm doing all this other stuff. There's just something about being on a mountain or in the desert. Doesn't matter. I've done that in Texas too. When you're carrying meat out in the in the wild, it is it's a trip. Yeah, it definitely is. It was shocking. I, I, my shoulders were burning. You know, I mean, you know how it is. It was my first time doing this, and I lifted the pack, and I thought, eh, it's not going to be that bad. And about 200 <laughs> yards in, I mean, there's deadfall. A yeah. lot of deadfall everywhere. It's low, swampy. You know, we we're going through water, and we had water up past our shoes and so we were walking wet <laughs> and uh yeah it was something man i'll be more prepared next time the, the plans to go back and so i plan on doing that again but being more prepared yeah that's awesome uh jared i want to ask you just about some of the stuff that you've got going on in your realm i think you guys are uh we have an intensive coming up uh, maybe right. just talk a little bit about that tell us what uh, what's going on in your world yeah well about uh, five years ago we started the ministry the shepherd's crook it started off as a nonprofit. And I had a group of guys that I'd been working with. And so I decided just to go ahead and formalize ministry to pastors. And I had, for some reason or another, rubbed shoulders with a lot of pastors. And and they would come to me and talk to me about ministry problems or whatever it may be. And and so I started a podcast and nonprofit around that. And as time began to roll on, I just was putting out podcasts and talking with pastors. And it really developed kind of more into a pastor courage ministry more than a pastor mm. care ministry. And so it started off as, as kind of counsel and care for pastors. I'd, I'd been in biblical counseling at a counseling center and wanted to spend time just helping out pastors that maybe went through a sin failure or something like that. But quickly, 
that developed into, I want to help pastors get healthy as men. One of the things that I saw is that almost every moral failure had to do with guys, pastors, not knowing how to live life before God and others. And so it was basic moral failures from lack of spiritual disciplines to just just failing in these big areas of life. And uh, so I started getting, uh, you know, a group of guys around and, and I said, well, you know, conferences are great. You guys are putting on a conference. Would love to come out there um, if I could. Uh, we're, we've put on conferences in the past, but I want to do something that was a little unique and have some content, but also has some physical challenge. And so I started uh, what's called yeah. the Shepherd's Crook Intensive and we go up to Eminence, Missouri. It's a group now of last year, there was almost 50 guys from seven different states. And it's two days on the river, about 50 miles of a float trip on a canoe. And then you have uh, two nights or three nights camping out. And guys can either stay in a campground or if they want to get frou-frou about it, they can get a you know a cabin and we'll make fun of them a little bit for that. <laughs> there are teaching sessions and it's just a really great time. So, I mean, if guys are interested, they can they can certainly reach out. But I've been doing that um, and then been doing the podcast. I, I'm 408 or nine episodes in now and it's been a lot of fun. You know, Eric, you've been on the show and, and a lot of the guys that I've uh, learned from that are in your circles have been on my show. And it's just been fun being able to talk to guys over the years and, and learn a lot and, you know, have a lot of fun in the process. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, one of the things, Jared, too, that I, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this. Uh, but you have somebody in your camp that is a little bit of a David Hasselhoff, a little bit of Baywatch. Yeah, a little bit of Baywatch. On. Our, our right. friend yeah. Brandon Lansdowne. So Reformation Coffee. Brandon has a, there's a story associated with this. And I feel like I yeah. got to hear that story. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell this as best as I possibly can, Eric, because it, it it's a story that deserves justice here. So we have a, a young guy that came on the trip last year. His name was Douglas. It wasn't Doug. I went to Douglas and I, I said, hi, I'm Jared. Thanks for coming on the trip. Uh, nice to meet you, Doug. And he quickly corrected me. He said, it's Douglas. I said, okay, so make sure I'm going to call him Douglas, <laughs> Douglas. on this trip. And uh, Douglas wouldn't mind me telling this, but uh, second day, we've been on the river and everybody's a little bit tired. You know, we're about the end of the road, end of the trip. And there's a, a little section where he had to swim through some rapids to get to this cliff. And, you know, everybody's got to jump off this cliff. And there's a couple of rites of passages that you have to take on this trip. You have to get in this ice cold natural spring that goes right into the river. You got to get into that and you're going to jump off some cliffs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so <clears throat> we were doing that. Douglas started to swim across and all of a sudden he starts to flounder a little bit and he was cramping up or something. I guess it was only 43 minutes after he ate lunch or something like that. It wasn't quite that 45 minute mark. And so his muscles start cramping up and Baywatch comes in. This is Brandon Lansdowne. Brandon is 42 years old and this dude is chiseled, man. I mean, Lansdowne, he's got this podcast, Absolute Unit Podcast, that that uh, is going great. He, he and Joshua Jenkins are doing a great job. But we turn around and Brandon with perfect Hasselhoff form, I'm talking, <laughs> dives in in perfect form, not any splash whatsoever in the water. And he swims over and perfectly flips Douglas over, grabs him and swings, uh, you know, swims him to the shore. And our, our good buddy, Scott Tungay, he coined the name, uh, he coined the name Baywatch. And so next time you guys see Brandon Lansdowne out there, make sure and call him <laughs> Baywatch and make sure and buy him. If you're going to the conference, it would be really good if you could find some red Hasselhoff shorts to give to yes. him. That would be a great idea. The more, the better. So, I mean, if there's like 20 guys that come and hand, uh, you know, Lansdowne at the booth, and uh, maybe he can put those on the booth or something, staple those up up, up there or, or something like that. But uh, I feel but like affectionately, we, do, we do have to make that happen. So, yeah, definitely. he'll be there at uh, the new Christendom Press Conference uh, with Reformation Coffee <laughs> and uh, Baywatch. You That's get right. extra points if you refer to him specifically as Baywatch. Can, can uh, I just go ahead and say that Eric Kahn will buy you a bag of coffee if you're the first guy to call him Baywatch? Is that, <laughs> yeah, can I put you on the spot you can, here? You, you can do that. Yeah, that, okay. I think that's a fair... 
that's a fair challenge that we need to we need to see that make happen. And uh, yeah, lo- looking forward to that. And I want to see his reaction too. I think that's yeah, going to be it'll be good. It'll be good. We'll have to get that on on camera. Uh, Jared, I want to ask you uh, a couple things. We're going to talk in this episode. Uh, recently, I had uh, Ken Harrison, who is the CEO of Promise Keepers. We had a really good conversation on the podcast uh, about you know their ministry, how it's changed over the years, which quite a bit. But it sparked a really interesting conversation between you and I uh, about kind of 90s men's ministries. We want to talk about that. Promise Keepers. Uh, we've talked about Wild at Heart as well before. But I, I want to get to that. But first, I, I, I had a separate question. We, we had talked about John Eldridge. Yeah. And uh, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about, and I've had people ask me this, about rights of passage, initiatory rights for young boys. Um, I'm curious on your front, how have you thought about that issue? And then is there anything that you have implemented uh, for your boys? Man, thanks for asking. Um I have spent a lot of time thinking about intentional rites of passage because there's so many people who identify the big gaping hole in our society, in our world with the lack of rites of passage. And you hear this conversation, you hear it written about, you hear it talked about, you hear podcast about it. And I want to do something about that. And so intentionally, what, what I've done is thought through this process of these, what I call six ma- masculine biblical virtues, which would be worship, work, protect, provide, lead, love. And if you just kind of do a quick mental survey in your mind about those words, you can kind of pick up where all those come from. And you know, okay, that's pretty, that's, you know, that's okay. I see where, where you're coming from there. And so yeah. what I started to think through, man, is that the lament is there. If we move from lament to action, then we can actually do something on the front end of this thing when when a lot of our, our boys are young. And what I heard guy after guy say, when I was younger is, is that I wish somebody would have told me this when my boys were young about whatever it may be, a bunch of different topics. And so my thought is, well, I would rather err on being more intentional than less intentional on the front end and learn lessons along the way, trying to walk my sons through rites of passage rather than waiting till they're 18 years old and then thinking more about it, doing podcasts about it, writing about it, that kind of thing. So what I've done, Eric, is but by the time my boys are 12, so I've got a ransom is ransom's eight. Valor is five. When they turn 12, I've got rites of passages built around each one of these words, worship, work, protect, provide, lead, love. And so those include several different things, but it's a, it's an intentional time for six years, at least give or take a few years where with each one of these, uh, when I d- identify this, this character, this, this virtue being displayed in my boys, we are going to intentionally then go through some sort of rite of passage, then ceremony. And I've got all these worked out and thought out. I've actually done a series about this on my podcast. If you want to check this out in, in greater detail, but I think it is important that we move you know, past just thinking about it or being sorry that they're, they're not there and actually do yeah. something with our boys. And it's kind of like discipleship, man. Everybody looks for the silver bullet with discipleship. And it's just a matter of doing something. And, you know, God meets you in there in that process of, of, of spending the time of meeting with somebody one-on-one or spending time with your sons. It's not necessarily the formula or the program that you use. It's just the intentionality of, of actually doing it. And so God has a way then of building disciples right in, right, right in front of us as we're just doing something. You know, there's some things are worse and some things are better, certainly. But uh, but yeah, so I mean, for, for me, I, th- I think, you know, what I've been working on, what I put out there is, is really malleable. I mean, guys can really take take what I've put together and then apply it to their to their sons and even, you know, change the words. You don't know, like worship, work, protect, provide, lead, love, you know, you build, build it out yourself. But then then build around these ceremonies and rewards around this, these kinds of ideas for your sons and put them through really extreme challenges. Walk through them, you know, walk with that through them or walk through that with them. And, uh, and then, you know, hopefully, you know, by God's grace, you know, we get to the end of that and, uh, 
you know, my sons are godly men that, that know how to be a head of household. Yeah, I think that's so important. I remember, uh, you know, Pastor Dan Burkholder and I, we've talked a lot about this when we were reading through Robert Bly's book. And he specifically talks about how it's the job of old men to initiate uh, younger men into masculinity and into manhood, which is a really intriguing idea. Um, so my question for you, though, is like, I guess just generally, do you agree with that? And then the second tag along would be, do you see that happening in the church today where older men are engaging in that? Well, I think the lament really is there for a reason. You know, mm. we talk about what God commands Titus to teach in Titus chapter two. He, he commands the older men to be taught some things from a younger man, which the, the first thing that I think is just hid, hidden in plain sight is that Paul expected that these older men would be teachable enough to learn something from younger Titus. And those kinds of men really are hard to find, I think, for some of the reasons of what we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. But one of the things we want to do is if that's not happening, okay, we'll become the kind of guys that in 20 years from now, that can happen, you know, where we're actually doing that for our sons and then their sons that they're going to be having. So all the things that we learn, both positive and negative, there's so many things we learn in this life, man, where, where we learn from our fathers or grandfathers, and we know we want to replicate that. So I want to take that and I want to then apply that in my life. And then there's a lot of things that we learn, like a lot of things we've had to learn with the older guys and the sad lack of godly older men right now in, in the church as a whole. What we've had to learn is positive lessons from the negative where it's okay. I'm not going to do that. There's a line drawn in the sand. And I'm not going to be an older guy like that by the grace of God. Help me not be like that. And so we, we can go search out those older guys, but even, you know, as guys go out to search out older men to in, include them in this process, like, you know, for the first rite of passage for my son, it's going to be, you know, it's worship. This is where a man finds his identity as, as a worshiper. He takes this the rest of his life. And in each of these, these progressions here, he's never not a worshiper. And so I'm going to have older guys around not to come and tell them all that they see that's awesome about my son. But what I want, want my son to hear is not positive words of affirmation about himself. I want them to hear, I want him to hear the men he respects and reveres talk about their walk with the Lord, about how God had saved them and really what life in Christ is all about. I want my son to listen to the men he respects say that. So you can go search him out, but even if you search them out, man, they're, they really are hard to find. And so the, the big thing I think is you got to take, okay, well, I'm not going to be hard to find in 30 years. I'm going to be there and and they're not going to have to come looking for me because I'll be present. I'll be there for the younger guys that are around me. Yeah. I think that's such a phenomenal point. Uh, and it really does tie into kind of the bulk of what we want to talk about in this show with promise keepers, the nineties going into the OOs. what was going on? Because I, you know, look, a lot of the guys who are the older guy now were kind of at the peak of those movements. Mm -hmm. So I think it's worth doing a little bit of analysis and saying like, okay, what, what was going on with promise keepers? What was, Kind of what was that movement? Why was mm -hmm. it so popular? I guess just start with, like, we had guys meeting in stadiums. Yeah. Uh, you had guys like Bill McCartney. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, just walk me through that. Like, what was going yeah. on and, and what, what was happening? Well, historical analysis can be kind of difficult when you look back in history and ask why we are the way we are now what was happening then that made made something so popular. But I think there are some big markers there. But first, if you just look at what actually happened in 1990, I think it was 90 or 91, Bill McCartney made this call out to a bunch of guys and said, we're going to get together. We're going to do this men's ministry thing. So he's the pastor of the Colorado University football team. If you remember, uh, Cordell Stewart, I believe, played for Bill yep. McCartney. And uh, so the first year there was 4,200 guys. 
And I mean, if, if you've ever done an event, I mean, you just think that if 4,200 people came to the conference, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the new Christendom press conference in the first year, I mean, that you'd be ecstatic. You, oh my gosh, are you kidding? There's people standing in the streets all around them. Just amazing. Well, the next year, fast forward one year later, there's 22,000 guys wow. that come. So 4,200 4, to 22,000. The very next year, there's 50,000 that fills an entire stadium. So something's happening in, in those years that was, you know, that was preparing these group, this group of guys. It was ripe for something. It's like the right time, lightning in a bottle, bottle kind of thing. I mean, it was the right time for all this to come together. So somehow or another, all these guys, it was like the, the alarm went out. There's something for guys here. And every guy in every nook and cranny in the country started to come. And then it all kind of culminated and build in 1997. It was the, uh, the stand in the gap march. Uh, and it was over a million guys. They were wow. a part of promise keepers. So that was it, in DC. That was 19. That was Washington DC. And, okay. and so it was remarkable, man. It was, it was, it was certainly, there was a lot of really good things that came from that. And I mean, it's a good thing to be a promise keeper. I think you'd want to be that. I mean, I know I want to be that. I don't want to be a guy that, that isn't a man of my word kind of thing. But yeah, I think there were a bunch of cultural things that, that led to that moment. And those guys, baby boomers whose dads weren't really there in a lot of real ways. I mean, you know, every one of their, most of the, you know, our fathers are most of our grandfathers. So I'm uh, pushing 40. I don't know how you all, old you are, Eric, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that your grandfather in that era of guys, not everyone in that age group, but they didn't tell their, their sons that they loved them. They were just hardworking men. They went to war. Stiff upper lip. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, and that was just the way it was. And so our dads really, they grew up that they had that with a combination of rampant feminism that had just so infiltrated the church and seeker sensitive movement stuff that had happened in the eighties. It was almost like this was the only outlet for us to actually come together and actually be men. And so something happened, the alarm went out and people, I mean, these guys just answered the call like crazy. It's pretty wild just, you know, just to think about how, how fast it grew. As a huge proponent of the carnivore diet, I quickly learned how great eggs are for you especially when you slonk them 8 to 12 at a time. But whether you drink them raw or scramble them with some sausage, they're good for your heart and mind and they help you build a ton of muscle pretty quickly. My preferred source for eggs is from my own backyard, and I've loved getting my birds from Ideal Poultry. Ideal Poultry is the number one backyard poultry supplier in the country, and they're also wonderful people. Ideal is owned and operated by a solid Christian family, who is worthy of your patronage if you are looking for some fantastic birds. So visit Ideal Poultry today at idealpoultry.com. Again, that's idealpoultry.com. You can also check the link in the show notes. Do you think it was, because I, I didn't think about this till recently. Obviously, I had Ken on the show. We were talking about it. He, mm-hmm. We'll get to this too. He had some interesting takes, but... I kind of see between Wild at Heart and this, there's something similar uh, with those two movements and like why they were happening a little bit at the same time or really Wild at Heart, I guess, like right after Promise Keepers hit its peak. But it really is this thing of Eldridge talks about like the father wound. Um, Mm -hmm. You're talking about this. But I also think this is kind of what, it was a central tenet of boomerism. Like boomerism built, the big fast and famous church. Yeah. And so like they, they grew up with like their heroes were guys like Billy Graham. So they're like, if you're going to do something effective, you got to fill a stadium. I mm-hmm. think promise keepers, honestly, I, I, I don't, I don't know the people who at first had the ideas, but it's like, it kind of makes sense. Like 
you remember, um, obviously, Billy Graham filling stadiums, but then like Tom Landry, Dallas mm-hmm. Cowboys football coach, he yep. would do the crusades with them. Mm-hmm. There's a few features of it, though. It was always celebrities. Mm-hmm. It was always like this. It's modeled after the crusade. So it's this emotional call down to the front. You know, it's, you know, celebrity plus an emotionalistic experience just on that front. Is that kind of what you were seeing yeah. with these movements? Well, if you think about this, the way I bookend 90s men's ministry, 1991, you have Primus Keepers, but you also have this book that sold like wildfire. It was by Steve Farrar. Okay. This hmm. book was called Point Man. And it's actually really the best representation of what 90s men's ministry was. Steve Farrar was the best of the best of the 90s guys. Okay. He was a Martin Lloyd-Jones guy. Martin Lloyd-Jones guy. He was quoting the Puritans. He went through, I've actually, I had him on my show before he passed away, but he went through a deep period of depression in his thirties and God led him into the Puritans and he discovered the Puritans and then Martin Lloyd-Jones, or it may have been Martin Lloyd-Jones was the avenue into the Puritans. And and so he was this guy that was telling stories, but actually had some doc- doctrinal fidelity. And he was one of the few guys that did in the 90s. So if you take his book and Promise Keepers all the way to 2001, Wild at Heart, that's 10 years. Okay. Now, if you listen to these big names that were a part of Promise Keepers, you have like guys like Joe White, Tony Evans, uh, Tony Campolo, Jack Hayford, Howard Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll, all these guys on the back end. It was Kurt Warner. It was Tony Dungy, uh, you know, kind of capitalizing on the, I think it was like 1997 or 1999 run of, of, uh, of the Rams. Yeah. Tony Dungy was big then too. Quiet Strength, his book had come out. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So yeah, I mean, everything back then, and even when I was a young, when I was a young man to do anything for the Lord it meant that you had to start a movement. It had to be something big. It had to be something that you made a name for for yourself or, you know, you went out and started a church that ended up being massive. And I grew up in a larger church. So anything that I was a part of, it was, there was a lot of people. We had like 700 people in the church I was a part of. So we'd go to these big crusades crusades, and we loved it. I mean, we just thought this was it, man. So I I think you're right that it did tap into some sort of celebrity, but it was also just in the moment of of everything was so big and massive, you could still do something like this and and say, we're going to rent out a stadium and ask every Christian guy to come. And apparently in 1993, every guy across every church in America was like, yeah, we're going to fill up a a bus and we're going to be there. We'll cross land and see, we'll do whatever it takes, but we're going to be there. And so, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right that, it certainly wasn't a stream of of people that were doing that that big famous fast. Uh, not just uh, uh, Rick Warren, but uh, what was it? Bill Hybels and uh, uh, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, and Andy Stanley. Basically, all that that whole model. So I, I think it was caught up in a lot of that. It was also big into racial reconciliation stuff. They were talking about that all, all that stuff back then too. Black dudes and white dudes worshiping together and all that kind of thing. So I think there were, there were a lot of different factors there that that uh, you know some of which were better and some weren't as, weren't as good, but it seemed to be a real work of God, even with all their flaws. I mean, it seemed to be something supernatural happening. What do you think? Like, as you look at stuff like that, you know, I I just did a podcast a few weeks ago about the Asbury quote unquote revival, kind of thinking through that. A lot of people ask those questions. Obviously we're a country that revivalism has been a big part of the, you know, whatever denominations really cross denominational, uh, but the American Christian movement, I guess it's been a part of that. One of the things that we ask is like, is this real? Okay, that's one. But but then also like, what is the long-term fruit? Mm-hmm. So it was interesting in talking to Ken Harrison because he kind of spoke pretty directly to this. He was like, yeah, the fruit was not, long-term wasn't great. Mm-hmm. And we can get into some of those reasons. But I want to ask you, like, what did you see of the fruit? The guys who were a big part of it, 
uh, if you knew them or just in general, like where are they today? Has it continued? Was it a good thing ultimately? Yeah. Well, I, it's tough to measure because almost any thing that was revival-esque, you look at even the first great awakening and Ian Murray's got a great book, Revival and Revivalism, that explains mm-hmm. the difference between the first and second great awakening. And certainly in each one of those cases, there were excesses. And yet there were people who could pinpoint, that's when I was converted. That's when my life was changed, even in the second great awakening, where there were real things happening alongside of, of fake things. But the fruit of revival is always repentance and obedience to God's word, a love mm-hmm. for God's word, uh, doctrinal fidelity, rather than sloppy ecumenicism, which is really what we see with, with promise keepers. But, you know, when you, when you think about promise keepers as a whole, to, to have something that big, you do have to value ecumenicism over other things. And this, is, this could go back to some of the warnings that, that, you know, if you look at the, the spat that Lloyd-Jones and John Stott, Stott had in, in England over the Church of England. And it was, in the end, it was proved that Lloyd-Jones really saw what John Stott didn't see. He saw where things were going and separatism usually is the way to go. It's very hard to stop a sinking ship seeking ship when it's doctrinal sliding that's happening. And I, I think exactly what happened with uh with uh promise keepers, it was there good things? My goodness, there was guys that their life was completely changed. They went home and they became a better father, they became a better husband, and they didn't want to make you make the mistakes of their father, and so they became a promise keeper. And that's a good thing, you know. Praise praise the Lord. There were guys that really their heart was set on fire. But when it's something so big, what do you do? You lower the value of doctoral precision to be able to get some so some sort of so-called unity. And then you know, you end up producing a group of guys that uh, really look up to, I mean, when you have athletes on the stage and celebrities on the stage, you're not having pastors, but also what you're you're doing is you're separating a local church and a normal life in Christ in the local church. And then this big event. And I think what a lot of guys did is like, Hey, the man thing is promise keeper event. The woman thing is church. And a lot of these guys took the eldritch route and just kind of flipped the bird to the church and just like, eh, forget it. You know, the church is for, for the women and also, they didn't have the tools somehow or another. They didn't have the tools to be able to raise their sons and daughters. You know, you look at the nightmare that is our generation. Yeah. And we're, we are a nightmare for some reason. And even within the church, and it's certainly due to our sins. It's not, it's not just, you know, we just blame our parents. But most of these guys had no answer for why men are men, why women are women. What is the context of marriage? What should I do as a husband in marriage? What should my wife be doing as a wife in marriage? Mm. And they had no protection of their sons or daughters. They couldn't answer why is homosexuality a sin? Anything, anything like that. And so the, the fruit of that ended up being, you know, a lot of guys that went back and didn't really value the, the local church, or if they did, they didn't really, um, dive in when it comes to doctrinal precision at all, which is always the fruit of revival. Real fruit of revival is doctrinal precision. It's growing in your love for God's word and its application in all of your life. And for a lot of these guys, that was just the exact opposite. It just didn't happen. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. There's a number of things uh, that you mentioned uh, that I want to ask you more more detail about. So one of them is doctrinal fidelity. So this is a really interesting thing that I think you know, like with Kings Hall, with Brian and Dan, like we started thinking about this, like we grew up with mega churches and we grew up with Acts 29 and Mark Driscoll and we love our big movements and our celebrity preachers. I mean, even the young restless and reform was known mainly for its celebrity preachers. Right. But it seems like when you try to build things like that, that the thing that is sacrificed is doctrinal unity, even with something like 
together for the gospel, which was supposed mm-hmm. to be all about doctrinal unity. And then there's just things that come in, whether it's wokeness or intersectionality. I think those were some of the, the, the termites that ate that, you know, ate the foundation of what was happening there. And it just became very divisive. But I just want to ask you from a pastoral theological perspective, why is doctrinal fidelity? Like I would argue, let's actually start with a firm foundation of that. But mm-hmm. why is that so important when you're building a church, a movement, even your household? Yeah. Why doctrinal fidelity? Well, one of the things that Ken told me, and I'm assuming he told you whenever it releases, I'll I'll listen, is that he thinks that the guys weren't given work to do. They weren't told get to work. They were told you're saved by grace through faith, but then they weren't told that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, that that God has prepared for you to walk in. And okay, I get that a little bit, but without a foundation- Basically. Yeah, the the, the mission side, yes. And, And I get some of that. But when you get mission- disconnected from that doctrinal fidelity, you get into all sorts of stuff, man. You can get into a crazy, I got this crazy vision to go start this next thing. And that's what I'm going to do come hell or high water. And, and whether I destroy my family in the process or not, uh, this is what I'm going to do. But when, when I say doctrinal fidelity, even when it comes to thinking about a big event or whatever it may be, even with Acts 29 and some of the sad things that's happened with Acts 29, I don't even know if you saw this or not, but Matt Chandler posted videos or pictures of his daughter and she was wildly and modestly dressed and posting his own daughter, pictures of his own daughter in this. It's like, man, how far they've fallen. Where's my goodness. How's this happen? It's like social media. It's on social media, right on Instagram. It's just, it's crazy. And uh, so within a context of a local church, one of the things you guys, you guys do a really good job at is preparing people for the long haul is thinking big picture and thinking for the long, you know, like down the road. So churches have decisions to make, and this has everything to do with doctoral precision. What is evangelism? What is discipleship? What is a healthy ecclesiology? And many churches take the route like this, Eric, they, they say, well, we want to do outreach in our community and we want to grow our church. And, and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do serve day and we're going to put orange shirts on. We're going to go out in the city and we're going to put a hashtag go serve. And every time we do something, we're going to go to go do serve. And that's going to fill up. The hashtag is going to fill up on Instagram. And everybody's going to see that we really care about the city, that kind of thing. And, you know, in, in an individual level, if somebody came to us and was hashtagging every good work they did, we would bring correction. But when churches do it, they call it outreach rather than violating Matthew chapter six. And Matthew chapter six requires personal humility when you're praying, but it also requires institutional humility as well. So all that to say, when it comes to you can either do that or you can see ordinary faithful ministry in your local church with your families and see healthy families over the long, over the long haul. So we have 10 pregnant women in our church right now, 10. Hmm. So this year, if we had an outreach event and we had 10 visitors from that outreach event, come to the outreach event and then come to the church and they started coming to the church. We, you know, we, oh my goodness, everybody celebrate 10 people. That was a great event. You know, if it was only for one, you know, praise God, but we got yeah. 10, but this year alone, just through, through faithful, ordinary, let's obey you know, this cultural mandate, and we're going to take the family seriously, and we're going to see God expand our family. We have 10 babies in our church, and praise the Lord. Well, you see that happen, and that's happened multiple years years in a row now, where we've had seven to 10 children year after year after year after year in our church. Well, over the long haul, then, that has everything to do with doctrinal precision. What is evangelism? What is outreach? What is discipleship? And how does this work normally? And certainly there's a place for going out and, you know, proclaiming the gospel on the street corner. I'm not opposed to that. But what's a more effective long haul is getting fathers who know how to be a good father in their home, know what it means to be a a head of household, and then see that grow. And, you know, like, for instance, in our church, every single one in our church, every single family homeschools. That has everything to do with doctoral precision. 
And, and so what we've been able to see is God do a work where every single family has pulled their, ch- their child out of government schools and even out of private schools. There's a couple of private school options. And, uh, and so I think when, if, if, for instance, the impetus would have been on, on something like that. Now go home, take your kids out of public school be a good church member. And we're not going to do these conferences anymore. We've done five of them. Now go home and be a good, faithful church member. Um, maybe things would have been different, but uh, I think the whole question about promise keepers or any event like that, it goes back to the question of parachurch ministry and the validity of it to begin with. And so, you know, there's a lot of problems that can come with, you know, with any kind of parachurch ministry when it comes to, you know, people's involvement there. And then consequently their lack of involvement at a local church. So, yeah, I mean, I think it it requires doctoral precision and that's what these guys didn't get because they were so ecumenical that they're like, Hey, there's a Catholic guy. There's a Mormon guy. Who cares? Let's, let's all worship Jesus together. Yeah. And I think one of the offshoots of it, like you said, is that you get this sloppy ecumenicism and, um, it really is, I mean, you can understand the impetus, right? Let's water things down. Let's keep it pretty mm-hmm. broad. Let's keep it pretty normy. But what you end up finding is like, yeah, well, but what kind of people did you attract? Mm-hmm. And I, I think a huge part of it for me is looking at these movements and saying, okay, there's, you're very emotionally driven, just like revival. And what's not really promoted. And Ken did talk about this, you know, at length when I talked to him was, it really didn't bring people to the local church. Mm-hmm. And so because it didn't do that, like they never, to use a mainline term, they never got plugged in. They never became a part of the body, got discipled, you know, sanctification wasn't a part of what was going on in their life. So it was like, yeah, you had this really cool event. You went to it, you had an emotional high, pretty much ended there. Um, one of the questions I, I'm asking myself more and more so you look at Refuge Church, you look at the stuff you guys are doing, you look at the people who've been successful, Doug Wilson, Moscow, uh, G3, a lot of the churches associated with those groups. The people who are doing really well right now are not the people who are like, yeah, let's be pretty vanilla down the middle. Mm-hmm. Like they're the yeah. people who are like, no, let's be radically committed to the text of scripture. Let's be unashamed about what scripture teaches. Let's, in fact, let's take the things that we know the world hates and we're going to smash those idols in the public square. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you this question. Aaron Wren has talked about this. He said, you know, boomer world came out of neutral world. It was mm-hmm. a time when, to, you know, think about this. Here's, here's maybe a good example. Tony Dungy for the longest time, everyone respected him, quiet strength. He's kind of the picture of nice guy Christianity for my money. Like he's not loud. He's not your typical, like, you know, firm, assertive male that you saw in like Mm -hmm. football. So he gets put forward. He gets celebrated. It's all good. It's all gravy. This last year, he makes a passing comment on his uh, Twitter about how transgenderism is bad and he gets absolutely vilified. Then he comes back and apologizes. Mm. And I'm saying to myself, these guys, I think a lot of them are Christians. I'm not saying Tony's not a Christian, but I think they're utterly unprepared for negative world, which is what we are living in now. This right. world is hostile. You better be prepared for a dogfight. Um, it's going to be a lot more like the early church. It is not going to be that you go to a mega church and everybody respects you because you're a celebrity and you happen to be a Christian as well. Uh, so I just want to ask you that. Do you think it's a neutral world, negative world thing? Does that play into this at all? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of those guys bought into evangelism is, is being cool or friend, friends with the world. And yeah. instead of recognizing that friendship with the world is enmity with God, they thought it was evangelism and promoted it as such. 
And so we're going to look like the world. We're actually going to label anybody that questions what we're doing with our evangelism. We're going to label them pharisaical. And, you know, Pharisees by default can't be Christians. They're, they're on the out. The Pharisees are like the green people, the liberals, the progressive Christians. Those are all Pharisees, the Catholic church teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men, those sorts of things. But Pharisees aren't Bible believing Jesus loving Christians. And, and so somehow or another, that whole crew bought this, this lie that if Jesus was here today, he would be hanging out with the prostitutes on the street corner and he wouldn't darken the door of a church building. And, and somehow or another, that made sense to them. Like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so we're going to have to be really, really nice to everybody out there because that's what evangelism is. It's being, it's being kind. It's being nice. We want to make sure that everybody likes us. And then we're going to earn a, a seat at their table. And then we're going to be able to tell them about how Jesus loves them and has a plan for their life. And then their life's going to be changed. And I think the whole idea, the whole thing was missed. So, I, I mean, could it be tied all the way back up into the 80s and, and the seeker sensitive stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think that whole thing, when you, when you see evangelism, an outreach as friendship with the world and looking like the world, then you've already lost. So you're going to compromise down the road because you're going to, I mean, how many people sacrificed obedience on the God, obedience to God on the altar of public niceness or the altar of so-called outreach. And so instead of obeying, instead of doing what God has called us to do over the last three years, what we've done is bow down to everybody because we think that evangelism is the, is the, the top priority. And we've defined evangelism is friendship with the world. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. It's all played into that. And, and you've seen people kowtow, apologize. And those that are doing that, their churches are dwindling just like the mainstream churches have, and they're going to continue to dwindle. And they're going to go to churches that are just saying, Hey, we're not wanting to be mean. We're wanting to honor the Lord and do what he says. And we don't, it, it does, it's not going to bother us if we, we actually aren't friends with the world. And if they're at in, enmity with us, and I would rather them be at enmity with us than me be at enmity with God. As a global study from 2021 pointed out, people who lift weights just 30 to 60 minutes per week increase their lifespan by up to 20%. Other studies have shown that strength is one of the factors tied most directly to increased longevity. Interestingly enough, this holds true at any age. In other words, whether you're 18 or 87, you greatly increase your chance of living longer simply by doing some form of strength training. Speaking of which, I've been lifting weights through Barbell Logic online coaching for more than nine weeks now. Working with my trainer, Matt Reynolds, three workouts or four per week, and I have increased my deadlift and squat by well over 100 pounds and my bench press by over 60. I've never had weightlifting coaching before, but with custom tailored workouts and constant feedback, I've been able to improve form, increase weight, and grow much stronger in a short period of time. My deadlift is now up over 350 pounds. My squat is over 350 pounds as well. And on bench press, I've hit 250 pounds, and those numbers are still climbing. Are you ready to improve your strength, get in better shape, and increase the number of productive years that you have left on Earth? Sign up today for Barbell Logic's online coaching, and your first month is always free. They'll pair you with the right coach to meet your training needs. Visit barbelllogic.com slash hardmen to get paired with a coach today or use the link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. It's also interesting because when you look at, you mentioned the 80s and, you know, of course, Bill Hybels, but I also think of big movements uh, that were really popular, including Rick Warren. Okay, but even do like SBC, like, yeah. One of the biggest names that I knew when I was in the SBC going to seminary was Beth Moore. 
Yeah, right. But I'm man, I'm doing the math here, Jared, and I'm thinking, okay, well, Rick Warren just recently said that he was on with Russell Moore, who's the dean of school of theology at Southern Seminary, and I was there. Bro. He used to be conservative. Russ once wrote an article on patriarchy, pro-patriarchy. <laughs> and now, now they're doing a podcast together talking about why ladies can be pastors. You've got Rick Warren, like, absolutely jumping the shark on anything conservative Christian used to be. You know, uh, Bill Hybels yep. disqualified from ministry, removed. James McDonald, Mark Driscoll. I've had people complain about me mentioning this. I don't know all the details, but CJ Mahaney ain't what he was. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some bad things happen. I don't know how much was him or sovereign grace or whatever. Uh, but then you got Dave Harvey. Like now yeah. he's at like McDonald's church network. Like it's not good. Wow. So you start adding all these things up and I'm like, okay, it does make me reconsider. Not just like, like, I think some people are like, okay, yeah, there was a problem. You know, Matt Chandler and Driscoll X-29 has completely gone woke and fallen apart. Maybe there were a few problems here or there. I, and I'm saying, I think there was a problem in the foundation. Yeah. Because when you get that many guys apostatizing, falling off the wagon, coming out as charlatans, it's like, it was the whole movement. Mm -hmm. Now, fortunately, by the grace of God, I think there were a lot of us who were just like, small pastors and small places who were like, ah, I think there's a problem and God has been faithful to preserve the church through that. But yeah, I don't know your thoughts on it, but it seems like that whole movement has really tanked. Well, bro. So like Acts 29 was just Bill Hybels 2.0 with a Calvinistic soteriology. That's all it yep. was. And they still said things like this. Well, we want our church to be 60% Christians on Sunday morning and 40% non-Christians on Sunday morning. Everything they did was thinking about non-Christians first. So just this one thing changes everything, man. What, what is Sunday morning for? I mean, you know, uh, years ago, Kevin, Kevin uh, DeYoung wrote a, a book about this, a small little book. And, and this, the, you know, these things are historically in classic. I mean, they're, they're historically defined in confessions about what the Lord's Day gathering is. And, and these are things that nobody really knew. Acts 29 wanted a bunch of non-Christians and targeted non-Christians. And how many churches have you, have you heard that say, we're starting a church because we're going after the nuns and duns. And that, that is absolutely, that's, that, that is a, a repudiation of what the Bible talks about the people of God being for when we come together. And so this is one thing is uh, Sunday morning for evangelism, or is it for the glory of God and for the edification of the saints? And if you say it's for evangelism, it's going to affect everything you do. And pretty much all of Acts 29 would have answered that question functionally if not directly in, in their answer back, would have functionally by their actions displayed that they believe that Sunday morning, what they're doing is for the lost. And so we are wanting to cater everything we do from our beer and theology nights to whatever it may be to try to attract non-Christians to help them see we're not like them. And I think this is what, you know, for, for whatever people think of MacArthur and all his crotchetiness. He was the one actually warning against Driscoll and a lot of that stuff. Do you remember that? He came out against Darren Patrick yep. when Darren Patrick wrote Church Planner. And I, I remember thinking, so Darren Patrick is from my hometown. Oh, and really? Yeah, he's from my hometown. So I was like defensive. You know, how in the world could you write against Darren Patrick, man? Like he's our hero. But even with Darren, Darren would say things like that, too. We want 40% of our church here on Sunday mornings. We want 40% of the people here to be non-Christians. And so they, they're always thinking about, wow, you know, how many people that we want here that are non-Christians. It, it literally, dude, it was all it was, was Bill Hybels' Seeker Sensitive 2.0 with some Reformed soteriology thrown in the mix. That's just what it was. Do you think, do you think Jared, that's why like Chandler 
And those guys were so quick to go woke. Cause the, if you, if you're right, and I think you are, then it's like, okay, well the foundation, your foundational principle is do what the world is doing or be attractive to the world. Well, mm-hmm. the world just went woke and intersectional. So they're like, well, we better play that game too. Do yep. you think that's true? I do. Did you see by any chance, did you see the voting uh, session on the gospel coalition? This is the one that got him canceled from the gospel coalition. No. You can see this still online. Okay. So it's like him, Eric Mason, uh, Thabiti, Annabuile, Chandler, and Darren Patrick, and like one other guy. And it was right after Michael Brown. Okay. Oh, Darren yeah. was doing all this Michael Brown stuff because he had planted a church, uh, uh, the Journey Southern Illinois, and they were doing this, all this, this stuff, talking about, you know, black dudes and white dudes talking together and trying to understand the, the plight of black Americans and all this kind of stuff. Well, Vody was on the panel and he was like, Michael Brown, uh, you reap what you sow. And, <laughs> and that's what he said. <laughs> and, and Ed Stetzer, sure Ed that St- went over. Yeah, well. yeah, it went over real well. Ed, Ed Stetzer was moderating that, that discussion. That's what it was. And bro, they all turned on him like crazy. Uh, and that he never got invited back to do a single thing with the Gospel Coalition after that. Because Vody was the only one speaking truth into that situation. And they weren't having it. They absolutely wanted to be on the front end of this. Because honestly, I think it was in 2016 when Chandler did that... Uh, that conversation with that panel with Eric Mason and all this kind of stuff where they were laying out all this stuff about white stuff. My, my sister was actually down at, at the village church for a while. She was uh, attended there for a couple of years, her and uh, my brother-in-law. And she was telling down there that they were doing like this, this, uh, you know, trying to understand your white privilege training and all this kind of stuff at the village. And I think they were just trying to get on the front end of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think they were susceptible to that because of, you know, your, your edginess gets you in with evangelism. And that's what they've always wanted to do is be on the cutting edge of edge of, you know, when missiology is devoid of, you know, your ecclesiology and, and how many church planners, all they get is missiology. They get like this much ecclesiology. And so you're, you're there and everybody's doing a brew pub night, like I already, already mentioned, and nobody has a clue about, you know, biblical eldership and, you know, a healthy functioning body of Christ. And so, yeah, there's just problems everywhere. Kind of from the beginning. Uh, I remember, in fact, there was a, I don't know if he's still there, but there was a seminary professor at Southern um, and we were talking about this and we kind of got into it. He was an elder at the church as well. And I told him, I said, you know, if you want to be like a really successful pastor in Acts 29, uh, which I was part of Acts 29, but I said, you know, I feel like really what you ought to do is go to marketing school, not seminary, because that Mm -hmm. would be a better fit for what you guys are trying to do. Because we'd come into churches and they'd be like, they do demographic research and all this slick marketing and brand campaigns and, you know, the lighting had to be such and the music such. And the one thing that was almost never talked about was theology, discipleship, ecclesiology. That was just like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now, man, I look back because I, w- I shared space with so many of those guys. And I'm like, okay, the majority of them are divorced, have left the church, got disqualified for ministry. Like th- the numbers are high. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned Darren Patrick. I think he was the one that committed suicide, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yep. Yeah. So a lot of sad stories that ended that way. I'm curious though, I feel like what happened, at least from my very limited perspective, some of the guys went to kind of the Doug Wilson route. Like, okay, now it's like, I'm going to become more confessional because I saw that this stuff didn't work. So more confessional. I want to have, and this is what I've said. I want to, I want to be, I would tell Brian and, and Dan this all the time. I want to be boringly confessional, mm-hmm. right? Robust, love doctrine, all that stuff. But I'm not into anything that is like novel, new, brandy marketing type, whatever. 
there were a lot of other people though who kind of bought the woke movement. They bought into a lot of the, what you said, race reconciliation. Mm-hmm. My question is, what do you think's coming for the church kind of as a whole? Like what's, what's, what's post acts 29, yeah. uh, all this other stuff. And, and really honestly, I think promise keepers was far larger. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. But, but what's after all this? Yeah. Well, I think what you're seeing right now is the dissemination. I mean, Acts 29 has lost, I think, 40 something churches this year. Uh, John Harris actually did an episode earlier this month or last month now on this and interviewed a guy from Acts 29. So they're bleeding churches like crazy. But, you know, I think you're right. For so long, we've been told pastoral ministry is about being a visionary. And that's just a Baptist way to say you're a prophet. It's a Moses model. And (laughs) and so the idea is you are the visionary leader. Uh, Everybody gets around what you, you know, what you're doing. And then you know, as lovingly as possible, you tell them, if you're not, this isn't the church for you. This is what we are. This is what we're doing. Uh, then you go find another church. And I think guys are going to finally discover that we don't have the liberty of coming up with a vision or even a mission because Jesus has done that for us. And we should be and do the exact same that every single church has been being and doing for, I mean, since the early church, we should be all doing the exact same things. So when it comes to what God has commanded us to do, both on the Lord's Day gathering and throughout the week, you know, no no church is at liberty to say, hey, we're not going to do that. That, or we're going to do with our what, what our leader has told us to do, and you know as as long as you have these visionary leaders who think their job as a, as a pastor as a pastor is to be Moses, you're going to have these same problems. But if these guys will get past that and realize, man, we do want to be historic and we want to be faithful and we don't want to be innovative at all. We just need to be biblical and historic. That's what we need to be. Then we're going to be a lot better better for that. But sadly, man, I think we're going to see a continued. A continued mass apostasy. I mean, that's what we're going to see is a continued abandoning, not just abandoning the church uh, or some sort of high church, low church kind of thing, but a continued move left, left, left. And then what we're going to see is is more and more faithful churches in unfaithful denominations. So right now, I mean, what denomination would you guys ever want to be a part of? I mean, there's not, I mean, maybe the CREC, but other than that, all you have is faithful churches and unfaithful denominations. And I think that's what you're going to continue to see is the denominations are going to continue to rot and there's going to be faithful churches in unfaithful denominations. And then who knows what's going to shake out if, if they align or anything like that. But uh, denominations in our country are pretty much dead and gone, except maybe the CREC. Uh, other than that, they're dead and gone. So, man, I don't exactly know, but I know that if uh, if people continue to think that pastoral ministry, and this is what I want to encourage guys with all the time, the pastor's listening, and you're not a visionary. Jesus is a good enough visionary. He's a good enough lead pastor. He's given us the vision. He's given us the mission. Just go out and be faithful to the word and watch God work. Yeah, such an encouragement. Um, and the other thing, Jared, is the I was recently reading Great by Choice, Jim Collins' book about businesses that 10X'd uh, over the long haul, you know, the great businesses. What's really interesting is when they talk about the leaders, they're like, yeah, it's weird. The companies who did really well, like, and you could take this for pastoral wisdom, like the, they're, they're not visionaries. Like they're just guys who are like, they get behind the plow horse and they work hard every day mm, well. and they just keep plodding. And, and the guys who did that consistently over the long haul tended to outperform everybody else. Like we all think you got to be this like, again, promise keepers kind of model the early promise keepers. Like you got to be like Bill McCartney. I don't know if you ever heard him speak, but Bill was like the embodiment of charisma. I mean, they did a, uh, it was like a football life thing on Bill McCartney and the CU buffs. I think it was ESPN or somebody like this. And I know that a lot of it was like normie Christianity. 
Mm-hmm. And yet I'm watching this and listening to him, to him speak. And I'm like, my eyes are filling with tears. Cause I'm like, this mm. guy is, he can hold a room. Okay. But what's, what's the longevity of a movement like promise keepers versus as you're saying, look, Jesus says, be a shepherd, not a celebrity. Yeah. And so feed the sheep, do your work, be faithful. And God will be faithful to uh, build up his church. Jared, I want to close by making a shift. I want to talk just a little bit about, cause I know you think and talk a lot about this. Uh, but specifically with marriage, as you're thinking about how to build a strong marriage for men, this is a common, common question. Number one, what are the foundations of a strong, loving marriage? And how do you go about as man cultivating that? Well, the foundation first is that this is about Christ and the church. So mm-hmm. the, the foundation first is the gospel of Jesus Christ for both the husband and the wife. And all of our obedience as men flows from that. And all of the obedience from the woman, from the wife, flows from that as well. So one of the things I tell guys is that every man should want to know every single commission, prohibition, and limitation that God has given him, Mm. and then walk in that with joy. Amen. Every woman should want to know every single commission, prohibition, and limitation that God has given her, and want to receive that with joy and obey it. And so just like with anything else, it it, the the problem is application of what you know. You Mm. need to go to the scriptures and see what God has called us to be. It's pretty clear. I just uh, preached a two, two part series on, on manhood and womanhood from Titus chapter two and just the first six verses. And there were 11 commands to men. And if men would obey those commands, things would go really good in the household. And there were 10 commandments to women. And if they would obey those commands, things would go really, really good. So first we have to know what we need to do. And then we need to repent in the areas that we're failing. And because we know the Lord, because we, we have a firm foundation, we know that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no fear of putting our head up, getting your head up and saying, God, help me obey. And so help me to repent today. Gather group, a, a group of guys around you that can pray for you and then do what God's called you to do and do that with joy. And then when you mess up, turn to the Holy Spirit or turn to, turn to Jesus and said, tell him you're sorry and ask the Holy Spirit to give you power to do better. And over time, he will. And you'll get better at being the man that God's called you to be. And the ladies will get better at being the woman that they've they've been called to be. So all marriage problems are sin problems. And so the answer is repentance. Mm, Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, Jared, one of the questions I get a lot, guys, gals, actually comes from both. But people will ask, what do I do if I'm in a sexless marriage? So for, and this is a lot of this will be for, you know, our Patreon guys asking questions and then receiving uh, counsel. What types of counsel would you tend to give in that situation? Well, in that situation, first, the husband and wife would need to talk and express their concerns because the Bible tells us that we are only to limit ourselves sexually from each other for a period of time before the devil can get a foothold. And I don't know about you, man, but I don't want the devil to get a foothold in my life in any way. And I don't even know really... I don't really have a frame of reference for exactly what that means, but I know it's not good. And (laughs) so a sexless marriage, by definition, is an unhealthy marriage. It doesn't matter, even if you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, a lot of guys, as they get older, testosterone drops, and just the desire to to engage with any sort of sexual relationship at all with your spouse, it can wane as you get older. And yet, the Bible tells us that we are not to withhold from our wife and the wives are not to withhold from us. And so it's a matter, It's it, again, when I said we want to know every commission that God has given us, God has commissioned us to have sex with our wife. And God has prohibited us from withholding that. Same thing with the wife. The wife has been commissioned to have sex with her husband and has been warned against prohibiting or has been prohibited from withholding sex from her husband. 
And so th- this is an area of repentance. If there's a sexless marriage, then for both of you, one, one way or the other, there needs to be repentance. And so you, if you need help or outside counsel, go to your pastor or go to somebody, but get the help that you need because it, it, over time, it will bring rot to your marriage if you're not engaging in sexual intimacy. And it's just a matter of obeying the scriptures. I mean, we, we already talked about the authority of scriptures in our life. And if God tells us that sex is important in marriage, then it's important in marriage. And if he tells us that withholding from sex in marriage is an opportunity for the devil. That means it's an opportunity for the devil. And so we have to, we have to obey. Yeah, that's really helpful. A uh, final question uh, is you're thinking about specifically pastors in marriage. How do you encourage guys? Um, I guess, you know, part of this would be a question like what, what are the typical problems a pastor may face? Uh, you know, what I can think specifically like st- stress from mm-hmm. counseling, from ministry. How do you work through those issues with your wife, et cetera? Uh, what encouragement would you give uh, ministry, pastoral guys uh, regarding marriage? Well, guys, I, I mean, obviously cultivate a healthy marriage. You got to like your wife. And there's so many things and it just, you don't want to just love your wife. If, if you can think with me about these categories, you might reject these categories, but just think with me for a second about these. You don't want to get to 70 years old, 80 years old, or just say formal retirement age. You're 65 and you're married, but you really just don't like each other. You know, you've, you've, you just, you've got to that age and you look across the table and you see your wife and you're just like, meh, you don't really want that. And so you've got to fight to pursue your wife. And, you know, it's kind of cliche, I guess, but pursue your wife and take the lead in that. And you, you like her, you married her and you were physically attracted to her. Don't side sidebar. Don't marry a woman you're not physically attracted to, no matter how much she loves Jesus and then pursue her. And, uh, and so do what you can to take care of yourself to where she actually likes you and wants to be around you. But I'll tell you what, man, there was a, to plug Steve Farrar and, and throw his name in there again. He, he wrote a book called Finishing Well or Finishing Strong or something like that. He references another uh, 90s guy, Howard Hendricks. He was a prof down at Dallas Theological Seminary. And what Howard Hendricks did is he took a survey of like 400 guys that had some sort of sin failure over the last two years, pastors that had morally failed and were now out of the ministry. And out of like, it was like 93% of them it, it came down to these these three things. Number one, they stopped doing spiritual disciplines. There's no spiritual disciplines whatsoever. Uh, number two was they had no accountability. So they, they didn't have any accountability at all. And number three, they spent one-on-one time with women that were not their wives. So don't open the door for spending time with other women. You just don't need to. You don't need to be friends with other women. You, you have, you know, you're friends with dudes. You don't need a bunch of women friends. So spend time with your your, your wife, be friends with her Which and have a good time. Controversial. I mean, a lot of people have rejected this, but I mean, the the Mike Pence rule, mm-hmm. we've even said, I know a lot, there's a lot of pastors who've said, you know, I'll counsel a woman, you know, as long as my secretary is like with the open door in the other room, whatever church secretary. Uh, I don't even do that. If I'm, no, if I'm counseling women, generally speaking, if at all possible, my wife is there and uh, her husband, if she's married. Yep. So generally speaking, like I just keep my wife everywhere. Uh, and I've had it come up uh, years ago in ministry where somebody actually, uh, you know, got mad. He was under church discipline, but you know, it was basically like making accusations. So I was like, my wife and you have been in every meeting. Literally there's mm-hmm. no communication Good. outside of that. So you want to be above reproach, but I think you're right. Like, I don't think there really is a reason to have like these intimate side relationships with women and people say, Oh, friendship. No, I, that's probably not a good idea at all. No, you don't, you don't need to be friends with women. Your, your, your best friends are married. So when you're spending time together as couples, there's a, a sense in which you're a friend, but you're not texting, you know, your dude's 
wives saying, hey, you guys want to go hang out and go get dinner? Or you're not texting funny memes or anything like that. There's no reason for that. So if you're not friends with these women, you have your wife. I mean, this is your feminine outlet here. I mean, like not for you personally being feminine, but this is where you're getting your, I mean, everything is from your wife. And so if you're not getting that from all these other women, then you're, you're going to have time. You're going to have fun spending time with your wife. And, uh, you know, I love hanging out with my buddies, but I want to hang out with my wife and I want to spend time with my wife. I enjoy her. And so uh, pastors need to enjoy their wife or they'll end up, if they're spending time with other women, enjoying the time and the attention they're getting from those women more than they enjoy the time and the attention they're getting from their wives. And that's not good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Jared, I appreciate it so much. It's been a phenomenal conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot. I'm going to encourage people to check out uh, your podcast, which we'll include uh, links for in the show notes where uh, you also mentioned the upcoming initiative you guys uh, have. Uh, Where can people go to find out about that? Yeah. Okay, guys, you can go to the shepherdscrook.co backslash intensive for $185. That gets you a tent camping site that covers the food cost and it covers about 50 miles, two days of floating on the river. And there's four teaching sessions. We also are going to have an arm wrestling competition and we're going to have uh, giveaways, a bunch of giveaways and that kind of thing. Just, just fun stuff. But uh, I'm going to be teaching on a theology of Christian violence. We're going to do a course on self-defense and we got to answer okay. the question. Can I, can I'm I, in. can I, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so I've got to be, I'm going to be teaching on the ability of a man to take another man's life. And so can you, before we talk about self-defense, which we did last year, it was a great, great time. I guess some guys do a really good job with that. But we got to answer the question, can you, you know, theologically, uh, in good conscience, take somebody somebody else's life? And you got to answer that question for yourself. And then uh, if you want, like I said, you can for $300, you can uh, you can stay in a, in a cabin, but it covers the entire expense of the trip. You just got to get there. Eminence, Missouri, May 11th through the 13th. This is the fifth annual Shepherd's Crook Intensive, and we would love for you to be there. Awesome. We'll definitely encourage everybody to check that out. Sounds really exciting. Jared, again, thank you so much, sir, for your time. And uh, we will have to do it again soon. Absolutely, man. It's been an honor. Thanks. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 a month. And that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men Podcast today. Stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. Thank you.